You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 53. This week, I would like to invite everybody who listens to this episode over to the Facebook page of the show at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. I try to post interesting information from time to time, generally relating to the episodes, so come check it out. In this episode, we will be continuing our discussion about the French and British offensives in fall 1915. Last week, we covered the French attacks in Artois and Champagne from September and October, both of which we classified as failures. While the French were attacking these two locations, they were joined by the British, who were attacking near the village of Luce. Joffre had been adamant that the British join in the attacks of the French from the very beginning, and in episode 51, we talked about how he made that happen. What I didn't fully realize until just recently was the position this battle occupies in popular history. The 100th anniversary of Luce was about a week ago, and I read through several stories and a plethora of comments online discussing how the British were dragged into the offensive by the French, almost against their will. I thought I might address this before we talk about the action at hand. The French had certainly sought the help of the British, but I don't see any instance where they were putting any more intensity into their requests than from any other allies talking to their other allies during the war. The French had upped the pressure during the summer, but not more than should be expected from any alliance in wartime. The war was a year old, and the French contribution to this point in the war was far greater than the British contribution, especially if you are looking at the Western Front. Another factor in favor of attack was that a part of the British leadership, including the commander of the British army, Sir John French, were spoiling for another attack. While the location of the attack wasn't perfectly what the British leadership wanted, they certainly weren't unwilling to join in the attack. I believe this is an example of trying to find somebody to blame for failures, which there were many of in fall 1915. There are many different options when it comes to assigning blame for the failures at Luce but I'm not sure the French are the right targets. And with that, I will get off my soapbox, and we will jump into the build-up to the battle. There was a person on the British side that wasn't a huge fan of the offensive, and that was the man leading it, Sir Douglas Haig. 
His first army would be carrying out the attack, and he had several concerns, most of which revolved around the artillery situation of the first army. In Haig's mind, the first army didn't have enough heavy artillery, or enough ammunition for that artillery in general, to really do what they were supposed to do. These were valid concerns. This was the point in the war where the British were really feeling the pinch of supply shortages, and when they were probably feeling it the worst, if you look at the war as a whole. The British industry just wasn't producing enough shells to keep up with the demand of the army, and through the summer, they found it difficult to catch up and sort of create a stockpile for the fall offensives. To put these things in a bit more perspective, we have spent almost an entire episode discussing Austria-Hungary's economic and manufacturing challenges, and even they were producing more shells than the British. There was also a member of French's own staff that didn't fully support the attack, and that was Chief of Staff Robertson. Even with these two high-ranking officers voicing concerns, Sir John French and Henry Wilson both fully believed in it. Henry Wilson was one of the architects of the British-French alliance, and during 1915, he was a liaison between the British and French high commands. An important aspect of the agreement between French and Foch that had been made to where the British would help the French had been that the British were strictly attacking in support of the French. The terms of the agreement were very clear. If the French stopped attacking, so would the British. Unless the British advance was going extremely well, which isn't going to happen. We discussed this aspect last week, and it meant that the French kept attacking when they probably should have stopped, just to keep the British attacking, who also probably should have stopped. A bad situation for both parties. Regardless of why the British were attacking, or who did or did not want the attack to happen, they would be launching an attack. And where they would be launching it was between Luz and La Bassie, with the goal of punching through the German line and cutting off a few railways behind the front that the Germans used to move troops and supplies back and forth along the front lines. The village of Luz, for which the battle is named, was a small coal mining village in northern France, and unfortunately by the end of the war it would be completely destroyed. The shelling during the Battle of Luz and other actions in 1915 resulted in it being a pile of rubble by the end of the year and more action over the last half of the war just ground that rubble into dust. Such was the fate of villages caught between the lines. The 1st Army would be executing the attack, specifically the 4th and 1st Corps of the 1st Army, commanded by General Rawlinson and Goff, respectively. The two corps were comprised of six divisions, which is a paltry number when compared with the number of troops the French were using for their attacks. Fortunately for the British, they were just facing one German division in their attack. The British knew that they would have a numerical superiority, although maybe not 6 to 1. But even with this advantage, General Rawlinson did think that the chances of the 4th Corps were not very good. I will quote him here. General Haig tells me that we are to attack Affant, and that the French were doing likewise, and making supreme effort. It will cost us dearly, and we shall not get very far. End quote. For those who don't know, Afond means in essence. I didn't know that, so maybe other people don't as well. The attack would be launched on a 10 kilometer front. Uh, now, of course, the British didn't use kilometers in 1915, so they measured the distance in yards, 11,200 of them to be precise. And before this attack, there would be a four-day bombardment, which would include the use of gas, for the first time on a large scale for the British. 
The gas that they would be using was chlorine gas that would be delivered via large cylinders at the front, with the hope that the clouds of gas would be carried over to the German lines by the wind. There were 5,000 cylinders in total spread along the front which totaled 50 tons of gas. That sounds like a lot of gas. 50 tons, 100,000 pounds, but in this case it really wasn't. Loose would take place months after the first gas attack on the Western Front at Ypres, and during that time both sides had readied themselves for further gas attacks. The German troops would have gas masks to protect them, and even if they were not very advanced at this stage in the war, they would still provide adequate protection, at least for a little bit. Based on captured examples, the British knew that the masks would be effective for about 40 minutes, at which point the filtering mechanism would be overwhelmed by the gas. And this time, 40 minutes, is why 50 tons of gas wasn't very much. The problem was is that it wasn't enough to cover the German lines for more than 40 minutes, under anything but the absolute perfect weather conditions. So the British had to improvise. First, they decided to turn the gas on and off, hoping to prolong the effect of the gas, but the concentration would be reduced. But it was hoped that by spreading it out it would hopefully help. The second improvisation was the use of smoke candles to make the Germans believe that the gas was continuous. Nobody, on either side, would risk taking their mask off with anything even sort of looking like gas floating around, so the British hoped that by making sure that the Germans kept their masks on, it might hinder their fighting ability when the British troops finally attacked. Anybody who has worn chemical warfare gear, even the latest and greatest, can tell you that having to fight for extended periods with it on can be pretty rough. Neither of these improvisations by the British were ideal, and the entire plan to use gas would be a problem for the British as the battle approached, mostly due to the weather. All of the preparation on the front, from the greater artillery concentration to the gas being brought up to the front, couldn't go unnoticed by the Germans, and they were continuously improving their defenses throughout the summer. Like on other parts of the front, they put special emphasis on the second line of trenches. These new trenches were either created where none existed, or they were strengthened where they did exist. The Germans also brought in more heavy artillery, and cited it to have the greatest possible effect. All of this was designed on the new defense in depth paradigm. The first line was just there to slow the attackers down. The second line was designed to actually stop them. As the day of the attack drew closer, Sir John French knew what was on the line. Quote, Whatever may happen, I shall have to bear the brunt of it. And in cricket language, they may change the bowler. End quote. Sir John French knew that support for his command was waning back in London, and it was completely possible that another failure would result in a change of command. You will just have to wait and see if he is correct. A few days before the attack began, Kitchener appeared near the front to congratulate the soldiers that would take part in the opening attacks. He discussed the honor that was being put on them by being in the opening thrust. I'm sure this was a morale boost for the troops before the attack, although I doubt it helped much once the ball got rolling. Four days before the attack, on September 21st, the artillery fire began, and for four days and four nights, the constant fire continued. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right, 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. As the hours ticked down, the question of the weather grew in importance in the mind of the British leaders. Haig was very worried. An extremely specific set of weather circumstances was required to properly utilize the British gas, and the forecast was uncertain on whether or not they would be present for the battle. There had to be a bit of wind that would take the gas to the German lines, fast enough to move the gas quickly, but slow enough not to completely dissipate it. Haig had a staff of meteorologists at his headquarters, and they were doing their best and the conclusion they came to the day before the attack was a big maybe on if the conditions would be appropriate. The problem in this case was the complete lack of wind on the front. If the gas was released with the stagnant air, it would just sit over the British lines. Hour by hour, the conditions were continuously watched, and 12 hours before the attack, nobody knew what the situation was going to be. However, at 9 p.m., and just nine hours before the gas was to be released, all signs pointed to good conditions. It was also at 9 p.m. that the final order went out to the commanders at the front that the offensive was going to happen, but this order did not contain definitive information on the gas situation. At 3 a.m., the time for the gas release was pinpointed for 5.50 a.m., and over the next three hours, I'm sure everybody anxiously watched the wind every gust in the wrong direction, causing them to hold their breath. At 5.15, the explicit order to release the gas at 5.50 a.m. went out to the officers in charge of the gas canisters. On some parts of the line, when this order arrived, there was not even a breath of wind. The gas was released at 5.50 a.m. along most of the front. On the right, in the south, it generally went pretty well, with the gas slowly drifting towards the German lines. On the left, in the north, the story was different. In some areas, it didn't move at all, and it just sat in front of the British lines. In some areas, the wind was blowing completely in the wrong direction, and it blew back over the British lines. In the real war, there are reports of officers in the 2nd Division refusing to release the gas due to the lack of wind on the front, and they continued to refuse until direct orders were delivered from their commanders. Overall, even on the parts of the front where the wind took the gas in the right direction, the results were disappointing at best. When it did reach the German lines, it reached it slow enough that the soldiers were able to easily put on their gas masks to protect themselves. 
In the areas where it didn't reach the German lines, it was a serious problem for the attacking British. Even when it didn't blow back over their own lines, it would just sit between the lines, which meant that the British would have to attack right through it. This was the worst situation for the British soldiers moving forward. They were protected by their pea gas masks, so they weren't in any real danger. But wearing the masks made it hard to see, hear, and breathe as they charged forward. There is a saying that if you cannot see, you cannot fight, if you cannot hear, you cannot fight, and if you cannot breathe, you cannot fight. And the British, moving across no man's land in their gas masks, were having problems doing all three of them. Corporal Henry Laporte would have this to say about his movement forward, quote, I remember having difficulty in breathing and just stumbling along, end quote. Lieutenant H.G. Picton Davies was part of the front where the gas worked as expected, and this is his quote about how things went. Quote, At 5.30 a.m. the gas was released. On the front of our division, the wind was in the right direction and the right strength. The gas went over well. When the cylinders was, were exhausted, a smoke screen was put down. The trenches were bridged over with duckboards, and the infantry, wearing their gas masks, went over at 6.30 a.m. End quote. The results of the first British attacks were wholly dependent on the gas situation on each part of the front. On the right, the 47th and 15th Divisions did quite well, and it was here that the gas performed as expected. The village of Luce itself was captured, along with Hill 70, which was an important landmark in the region. As you move north along the line, the successes taper off as the result of the gas becoming less and less effective, and this directly correlated to how good the advances went. The first division in the British center was slowed down by the gas sitting in no man's land and didn't achieve their objectives. On the far left, the 7th and 9th divisions had to fight through the clouds of chlorine before fighting through the Germans. They made a little progress, but nowhere near what was hoped or as much as they could have under better circumstances. Even in their most successful areas on the right, the British ran into the same problems as the French had in Champagne. They moved over the first line of German trenches easily enough. The lines were completely obliterated by artillery. It is interesting, actually, to see the artillery for the British and French learning so much in less than a year. In the first battles of 1915, they had failed to even cut the first set of wire, and now they were easily able to cut it to ribbons. Part of this was just the sheer volume of fire, but part of it was also learning the proper type of ammunition and the correct bombardment patterns to have the greatest effect. The British infantry, having gotten through the first line of trenches, ran into the second line, and here, just like in Champagne, they began to bog down, and they came to a complete stop. There were a few isolated incidents of British troops forging their way through the second line and occupying it for a short amount of time, but all of these instances were the exception and not the rule. Where it did happen, the troops found themselves without a way to get any kind of support. They were often at the maximum range of their artillery support and right in the perfect spot to be blasted by the German guns. With the attack stopped at the second line of trenches, the question at the front became, where were the reserves, and when would they be arriving? And with that question, we arrive at the biggest criticism of the British commanders during the battle. During the attack, Haig had committed all of his troops, with very few corps and army-level reserves ready to be utilized. Haig was completely dependent on the reserves controlled by Sir John French, 
reserves that would move into the attack at Haig's request. The two divisions that were available were the 21st and the 24th, both of the new army. These troops were very green, having almost no combat experience, but they were still able to, maybe, do some damage, if they got to the front. Haig's entire plan was predicated on getting these troops forward to the point of need as quickly as possible, to beat the German reinforcements to the point of possible success. It would be the only way for the First Army to keep the attack going, and unfortunately for everyone involved, they were stationed too far away to be able to provide the necessary support. The two divisions were around 15 miles from the front, and they moved forward as soon as they got the order, but it was going to take a while to move these 15 miles. 15 miles is a good day of marching for an army that is making good speed, but it is impossible for these two divisions to make this speed on the 25th of September. There were only so many roads to the front, and most of them were narrow country dirt roads that were full of other traffic. This traffic included wounded men in ambulances being evacuated, ammunition trains moving forward to the guns, supply trains moving forward to bring food, ammunition, and everything else that is needed by an army to keep it going in the attack. All of these things were moving along the same roads, often in different directions. French had been the one to position the reserves, and he bears the fault for their late arrival. However, Haig should have kept some sort of reserve that he could use close to the front. That is just best practice in all wartime attacks for any situation. Always keep a reserve. As it was, Haig didn't find out where the 21st and 24th Divisions were until well into the afternoon on the 25th of September, after the attack was already stopped on most of the front. After the battle, Haig would state in his account of, of the action, quote, If there had been even one division in reserve close up, we could have walked right through. General headquarters refused to recognize the teachings of war as regards to the control of reserves. End quote. In this instance, I believe, Haig is being far too confident in what another division could do in the battle. They probably would have been stopped by the second line, just like everyone else. And even if they could have somehow captured the second line, this was not the end of the German defenses. Part of this account, and his blame on the positioning of the reserves, also could have been for selfish reasons, as we will talk about when Haig replaces French as British commander. With the attacks on the 25th at a stop, and no reinforcements present, there was only one option pause the attacks, and continue the next day, when the new two divisions became available. For his second day of attacks, Haig ordered another attack against the second line of German trenches, in the areas where the attack had gotten to them the day before. These trenches were still mostly unharmed by the four-day bombardment before the battle, making them far stronger obstacles than what the troops had faced the first day. The artillery support for the attack also wouldn't be as helpful. The preparations were measured in just hours, instead of days. This meant that all of the German machine guns and barbed wire would almost completely be intact and waiting for the British to attack. The troops that were available were the tired troopers from the first day, and the reinforcements that had finally arrived. These two divisions had very little experience, and that wasn't their only problem. They had been marching all afternoon and evening, and then they had spent the night and morning trying to get organized and ready to attack at 11 a.m. They were far from fresh. 
Tired troops and intact defenses are a recipe for a complete disaster. And instead of going through the events of the attacks of the 26th, I will just give three quotes of the attack, two from the German side and then one from a British soldier. The first quote is from To End All Wars by Adam Hothschild, where he quotes an unnamed German soldier, where the soldier describes the columns of British attacking through no man's land. Quote, Each about a thousand men, all advancing as if carrying out a parade ground drill. Never had machine guns had such straightforward work to do. With barrels becoming hot, they traversed to and fro along the enemy's ranks. One machine gun alone fired 12,500 rounds that afternoon. The result was devastating. The enemy could be seen falling literally in the hundreds, but they continued to march. End quote. As the British were forced back, some German positions stopped firing on them, as this German commander's account describes. Quote, My machine gunners were so filled with pity, remorse, and nausea that they refused to fire another shot. End quote. In a world undone, G.J. Meyer quotes a British soldier who had taken part in the attack. Quote, Coming back over the ground that had been captured that day, one Tommy wrote, the sight that met our eyes was quite unbelievable. If you can imagine a flock of sheep lying down, sleeping in a field, the bodies were as thick as that. Some of them were still alive, and they were crying out, begging for water and plucking at our legs as we went by. One hefty chap grabbed me around both knees and held me, Water. Water, he cried. I was just going to take the cork out of my water bottle. I had a little left. But I was immediately hustled on by the men behind me. Get on, get on. We are going to get lost in no man's land. Come on. So it was a case where compassion had to give way to discipline, and I had to break away. End quote. The casualties for the attack were just staggering. The British experienced more than 8,000 men killed or wounded during the attack. Some battalions lost almost all of their officers and most of their men. The Germans didn't lose hardly anything at all. With the failures of the 26th, you might expect the offensive to be over. A huge failure on that scale surely was the end. It was not the end. The Germans launched a series of counterattacks over the next several days, while the British tried to consolidate. If you remember from last week, the plan was actually to resume the attack on October the 1st, in conjunction with the French. These attacks got delayed all the way until the 13th, due to both British and French necessitated delays. When the attacks finally did take place, the German lines were stronger than they had ever been, and to try and soften them up, the British were able to muster only two hours of bombardment. To quote the official British history, quote, The fighting on the 13th and 14th of October had not improved the general situation in any way, and had brought nothing but useless slaughter to the infantry. End quote. And with this final failure, the Battle of Loos was over. Next week, we will take an episode to look back at the fall offensives in the West, before doing a review of the entire year on the war's most important front. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.